to the 10th podcast, bringing you insightful analysis on business and government news from a local to a global perspective. And now, here are your hosts of the 10th, Dan McCracken and Rocky Lawson. Greetings and welcome to the 10th podcast. I'm Rocky Lawson. If this is your first time listening to our show, we warmly welcome you. And if you are a returning listener, welcome back. On this episode of the 10th, we have the privilege of hosting Jan Glarum. He is an emergency management consultant from Chicago who has over 30 years of experience in the fields of emergency response, risk management, disaster plan development, and counterterrorism. Jan has extensive first responder experience as a firefighter, EMT, and has worked with various law enforcement agencies as well as hospitals. He is the author of several publications, including the Homeland Security Field Guide, a book titled Biosecurity and Bioterrorism, Pandemic Influenza, Community Response, and Hospital Emergency Response Teams. Here's my interview with Emergency Management Consultant Jan Glarum as we talk about the most recent disaster events, and he provides some insights on emergency management. I hope you enjoy the show. Jan, welcome and thank you for coming on the 10th podcast today. Good morning, Carl. Thank you for the invite. To start off, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and and what your background is in emergency management and disaster preparedness? I know you have a wide breadth of different experience as a first responder working in hospitals. Could you tell our listeners a little bit about that? Um, A a little bit, and please feel free to ask any questions if you you need some clarification on something. Um, I first started in the public safety world in the pre-hospital side of the uh, field. I first certified in the state of Oregon as an EMT back in 1976. I'm what they call a dinosaur VMS. Um, went on to get my paramedic and had a background as a provider, a training officer, and an administrator of a hospital-based EMS service. Um, also have experience with fire-based EMS and uh, private EMS. I did about 17 years volunteer fire service, so I understand people were in an air pack for a living. <laughs> Supported the Oregon State Police SWAT team as a tactical paramedic and repel master uh, for about seven years, so I understand law enforcement a little bit. Um, I was hired as the emerging manager in a coastal county in Oregon after the sheriff in that county and myself working from the state health division level were involved in a uh, 500-year flood event, a major federal declared disaster in the state of Oregon, and uh, we both found ourselves uh, having to solve problems that neither one of us had plans for or (laughs) policies and procedures, but uh, common sense prevailed, and we did a pretty decent job uh, helping a particular that was devastated, and he offered me a position to come and work for him after that. Um, I've been doing private consulting since about 96 uh, when I worked in the state health division and got an unusual background in military chemical warfare agents. That's a whole other interview. Um, and then uh, I've been doing full-time consulting work for about the last 10 years, uh, primarily helping communities or counties or regions or coalitions uh, and even federal planning um, relative to it seems like larger events and even catastrophic events. Um, I can elaborate in any of those areas, but I I know you've got other questions. Well, we'll definitely get into that because 
Unfortunately, yesterday we had yet another active shooter incident right. that claimed the lives of 59 people, wounded over 500 people in Las Vegas. And over the past decade, we have seen an increase of these lone wolf attacks, whether it's a homegrown uh, terrorist or somebody from the United States doing this, or again, uh, somebody from a uh, terrorist group such as ISIS or Al-Qaeda that's claimed responsibility for, for, these, for these shootings. Are there any tactics or strategies that could be, could be implemented to stop these attacks, or are we always going to be focused on the response? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, if, if law enforcement could stop these attacks, prevent these attacks, then, then we ought to be giving them all of our budget money to do it. Um, the, the problem is, particularly when you start talking lone individuals, there's no way to get inside somebody's head. Um, obviously, the most recent incident is, uh, you know, it's really quite honestly, it's an outlier as far as the, the gentleman's age and everything else. But um, if what we're seeing is true, I mean, he's certainly a mask wise quite an arsenal, which is not illegal, although, you know, what made this guy snap and decide he was going to do this? You know, from my perspective, what little I know about it, I mean, there was some planning involved uh, as far as the room selection um, facing this venue. Um, so prevention is a very tough sell. Now, hardening targets does help, but quite honestly, if you harden all targets, you're right back to where you started and, um, you know, every, everything's a target. So. I think there's some things that people can do on an individual basis just to be more aware and sounds bad, but kind of what if in your head that say if we're at this, uh, I go to a lot of street festivals in Chicago and I'm always thinking about, okay, if something occurred, what would the plan be to get us out of here? Um, so, you know, life doesn't come with a guarantee, but I think you can take some steps as an individual to do what you can to have a, a plan in your mind of what you would do. Um, because quite honestly, from a law enforcement standpoint, they're near impossible to prevent something like this. So what should someone do if they find themselves in an active shooter situation? What will help increase you or your family or the friends you're with at that festival in Chicago? What, what would increase your chances of survival? The government came out with a run, hide, fight uh, kind of slogan. Is, is that still the best method or there's some other there, there's some other things that you can do when you're faced in or could be potentially faced in that situation well, well again i mean it's you know if i'm putting together a class you, you have to put some objectives of bullets so you have to you have to hit print at some point so run hide fight is a is a decent strategy is it perfect no it's certainly not perfect um i think the one of the biggest things that people can do is you just have to put into your head that this could happen so if I, if I accept that this could happen, then all of a sudden I start looking at situations a little bit differently. Um, you know, people of my type of background or anybody in public safety, you just have a different way of looking at the world. Um, you get someone who's a professional firefighter. I mean, they just see, you know, fire hazards all over the place because that's the world they live in. Medical people see medical issues. You know, you know mm -hmm. sit next to the person on the airplane with a, you know, the oxygen and their color looks bad. I'm going, oh boy, this doesn't. Mm -hmm, so, mm -hmm. you know, the general public doesn't have that kind of a background. So, I think the biggest thing is you need to accept that this could happen, and then start thinking if it does, what do we do? Um, natural inclination for most people, you're going to try to leave the same way you came in. That maybe isn't the greatest idea. For example, for an example.
Did I lose you, Carlton? I I I can hear you on the phone. Um, so I I didn't hear your question. I didn't hear your response, though. Really? No. What does that mean? <laughs> I well, I asked the question. You, you started and, you, and then you kind of cut off. But I can. Was that were you finished with the sentence, or did I lose your technology? Please. Um, I just, yeah, I pretty much finished with the sentence, just an example of one thing people can Gotcha. Do. Okay. Um, so I'll go ahead and go, I can go ahead and edit this. Um, I figured you could. I, yeah. I, I can go ahead and do that. So next question. Many times in an active shooter incident, the shooter kills himself before law enforcement can question individual, gather intelligence. Are we identifying any trends with active shooter and what motivates an individual to go out into a public setting and, and kill random strangers? Um, you know, it, you probably need to talk to a psychologist for that one. Um, you know, I, I, you see plenty of data that, you know, six out of 10 of these people will give off some sort of clues to, to family or friends or somebody close by that, you know, hey, there's something wrong with Fred. But, you know, so many people nowadays in this country, it, it seems like violence seems to be the way to answer a problem. Um, call it the bar of acceptable human behavior just seems to have dropped and continues to drop. Um, you know, where you and I might have given somebody a dirty stare 20 years ago, now all of a sudden for some reason somebody wants to act out and violence seems to be the answer. Um, I don't think there's a good way to, you know, figure that because, you know, um, you're sitting on a, on a bus in a busy urban area, I mean, there are people you don't make eye contact with. Mm -hmm. um, what are you going to report him? I mean, there's nothing illegal about Fred not being quite right. So um, I, I think to really do a whole lot with that type of information of why do these people do what they do, um, I, I've yet to see someone come up with a really good answer of why these people do what they do. Now, a lot of people pontificate, and you'll see a lot of you know experts talking about this, but um, I just don't quite put too much stock in that. Is it wise to have various plans ready depending on the disaster? You talked a little bit about having a mindset, having situational awareness when you're when you're out and about. But you know, as an individual, you may be not only faced with active shooter, but you may be in a region such as the Northwest, which is uh, there's a risk of, of earthquakes or there's the oh, risk yeah. of hurricanes in, in Florida, as we've seen in the, the past several weeks. Is there a difference in planning for a natural disaster versus compared to active shooter? And, and, and what are your recommendations on that? Well, here's a, a simple thing that I was taught a long time ago from uh, some pretty good folks in survival. Um, and it's just, it's called the, the, the rule of threes, if you will. You can last three minutes without air, three hours without shelter, three days without water, and three weeks without food. Um, it's a good way to prioritize. Um, in other words, you're going to say, well, an active shooter is completely different from a Cascadia event on the West Coast. Well, not necessarily. If 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 the challenge is going to be I take a, a round through the chest, that's going to create a, a, a breathing problem for me um, that I need to get solved pretty quick. If I'm on the West Coast and I can't get more than a mile inland or, or higher than the projected um, inundation from from the water, I'm going to have a breathing issue, the same thing. But in other words, that's what's going to kill me. So I think there are some similarities. You need to look at what's the most likely hazard in this particular area, and what am I going to do if this happens? Um, maybe this sounds weird, but I mean, in my pack, which I'm normally carrying, 
Um, I've got uh, an Israeli bandage, I've got a tourniquet, and I've got a chest seal. Um, it, it could very well be for me, or it could be for someone that's next to me that uh, has a life uh, safety issue that I can temporarily fix. Um, so I think there's some simple things that people can do um, to understand well, what is the biggest hazard. It's, it's not going to be I'm going to go hungry by the end of the night. Yeah, I'll be hungry, but it's not going to kill me for crying out loud. Now, if I can't get into shelter and it's 110 degrees or it's 32 degrees, I've got a problem. Um, so I think there's some simple things that people can do. Um, it's a it's a daunting challenge to tell an individual on the west coast of the United States to prepare for a Cascadia event, and you're going to be on your own for weeks or months. Mm-hmm. Um, that's a tough sell. It may be real, but it's a very tough sell for an individual to do a whole lot about that. So in the case with yesterday, there were obviously those that were killed, but the people that were in need of medical attention, you had a mass casualty event, over 500 people. Mm-hmm. A lot of them requiring advanced life support, needing advanced trauma care. How prepared are our hospitals and health care professionals in dealing with MCI mass casualty events? Yeah, honestly, I think they're pretty good. Here's the challenge for an event like that, that occurred. Um, I think if you're looking about a you know a 10 mile radius of, of where that incident occurred, you've probably got 10 or 15 hospitals in Las Vegas. Um, now you've got one trauma center, um, but that doesn't mean that you know 14 other hospitals couldn't potentially stabilize an individual. The problem is, you know, on paper in a perfect world, these things are, are really easy to manage. Oh, well, I'll just give you, you know, 500 by 15, and we'll take, you know, everybody gets their fair share of these. That's just not the way these events unfold. Um, if you look at, you know, disaster epidemiology, the closest hospital gets slammed. Um, people get drugged there, people get thrown in a car there, they get thrown in a taxi there, they get thrown in a police car there, they get thrown in an ambulance and they get there. Um, that's the way these things unfold. So I think, you know, you take any hospital and yeah, they'll do an MCI drill practically every year and then they'll, you know, active shooters certainly become more common to do. Um, so you understand how to do with it, but the problem is more of the distribution. Um, the public, quite honestly, is in charge of most of the triage and the distribution of patients initially in these events. I don't want to say that's wrong. I'm just saying that's a fact of what it is. So we need to understand that the closest hospital is going to get slammed and healthcare providers are going to do what healthcare providers can do. They're, they're going to manage the patients that come in their door as best they can at that particular moment in time. So what are some of the most current trends in emergency management and, and what are the areas that we as a society need to improve the most? That's a great question. Um, one of the trends that I see that I'm that I'm all for is that it's becoming a younger person's game and it's becoming a game of the highly educated. In other words, people are coming into the field of masters and everything else. Um, on the flip side of that, some of those folks are having trouble getting experience and getting into positions um, because historically, emergency management has kind of been dominated by the, the retired fire guy, the retired um, military guy, um, more the civil defense mode, if you will. Mm-hmm. But it's certainly evolving where we've got a lot more data and we're looking at a lot more trends. And so I, I think as the next generation of emerging managers come in, they will be a little better positioned to be using um, data and science to drive decisions and systems they put in place. 
Um, as far as right now, I think the million dollar question is always is how do you get the public engaged to take some ownership in their own preparedness? Um, preparedness is always a tough sell. It always has been a tough sell. Um, you know, everybody's going to be talking about active shooter now. Why? Because it just happened. Mm-hmm. Um, well, a day before, we were all concerned about what was going on in Puerto Rico. You know, Puerto Rico is now out of everybody's head, and yet issues are still in Puerto Rico um, and in Texas and in Florida. But, you know, the public and a lot of even professionals tend to have a very short point of reference when it comes to preparing for these things. So it's like um, I may work on a project for a couple of months working on a Cascade event on the, the West Coast, and all of a sudden something else happens, and the interest goes a different direction, and off you go. So it's really hard to have any traction to build a program that's comprehensive because we tend to flip from one thing to another. And, and so I guess that leads my second question to tell our listeners, some of them may, may be government officials, some of them may be first responders or, or small business owners. Why is it so important to have a concrete disaster plan and not only to have a plan, but to exercise it regularly? And you may live in a region that hasn't had a disaster and you do see these things on the news, but you're thinking back, well, do I really need to invest this much in a plan? Can you tell folks why it's so important to have a plan in place? I think it's important to have a implementable plan in place. Now, that's different than having to have a plan based upon guidance pushed down from federal to state to county, etc. In other words, a three-inch binder plan will do you very little good um, when something happens. Um, the planning process has invited, but that document really won't do you a whole lot of good, quite honestly, because it's too big. It's unwieldy. Um, I'm all for really streamlining down. So you've got a very simple plan. Okay, what's going to carry us through the first two hours of this event? And then, because I practice using something like the incident command system a lot, it includes a planning process. And then I start planning for my next operational period in real time using real on-the-ground data. Um, we don't see enough people using, in my opinion, that type of a process to prepare and manage events. Um, we seem to have a lot of confidence in three-inch binder plans, and, and I've got very little of them because over my career, I've, I've seen that they, you know, they're great for wheel chocks, but they're just not that great for managing the event <laughs> when things are going on because people don't have the time to sit there and read this document, Trevor. What am I supposed to do? So I'm all for short types of exercises and training, but you do them multiple times. So all of a sudden you start to build up that muscle memory and the memory memory of, okay, when this occurs, this is what we need to do first. Um, we get that one done, then we're going to start it on this. Um, I like to say, you know, it's like eating an elephant, but eat it a bite at a time. Um, there's no sense getting too wrapped up in these events. You just got to say, okay, well, this is a bad day. What do we need to do first? So it's been over a week since Hurricane Maria devastated Puerto Rico, and obviously it's been overshadowed by the events in Las Vegas. Mm-hmm. But the U.S. also was faced with Hurricane Harvey in Texas and Irma in Florida. Right. Why has the emergency response been so different in each incident, and what could have been done or what can be currently done, because there's many people still without aid in Puerto Rico, what what can be done better to provide relief to those affected by Hurricane Maria in Puerto Rico? 
Well, and again, that, that's a tough sell. Some people say, well, it's, you know, it's an island. Um, well, sure, it's an island, but that's not a new finding. It's been an island forever. So, it, for example, if you put me in charge of planning for an island, then, you know, I'm going to be thinking about logistics because I'm an island. Um, so, I, you know, it's a little disappointing when we see people acting like they're surprised that it's an island and it's hard to get things to an island. Um, that shouldn't really be a surprise. Now, Puerto Rico is a little bit different because, you know, they're not, their emergency management program is not treated the same as a state here, you know, um, the continental United States. So, in other words, they don't get all the, the, the support that different states do as far as building up their emergency management program. So, they're starting out kind of behind the curve is that they don't have the local plans in place um, so that as the next level of government, the feds come in, um, it's not a seamless transition of, well, how do we go from here to here? Um, what you're seeing is the federal government coming in and those local plans are not necessarily as well defined as we'd like to see or typically would see here in the states. One of the things that we've seen throughout the disasters in the past few weeks, whether it was a hurricane or even first responding or first response to an active shooter, can you tell our listeners a little bit about what communication is like during an emergency response, and and how should you re, how should people prepare for an incident when access to information may be difficult to acquire, being that there may be phone lines are down or that the phone lines are so congested because everybody's calling, there may not be electricity. People in today's society are very reliant on technology and especially their cell phones. Those are going to be the first things to go into the disaster. So can you tell people a little bit about what it's like in regards to uh, communication? Well, you know, it's an interesting one. Um, I, I think that's another area that we're seeing emerging management having to evolve in, and that is the use of technology and how we all get our information nowadays, which is on our device in our hands. Um, it used to be, you know, you're told to tune into the television and, and wait for some briefing and they'll tell us what we need to know. Well, people are not used to that and that's not the way people function anymore. Um, when these events go down, all of a sudden, you know, Twitter and Facebook and everything else just blows up. Um, and so that is how a lot of people are getting their initial information. Some of it can be good, some of it can be bad. You, you get the, the challenge of uh, you know, one tweet gets repeated a hundred times and all of a sudden now you have a hundred events as opposed to you've got one event. Um, so as far as getting information, what I have personally experienced or over time is that you need to figure out, when I say you, I mean the individual needs to figure out what is their trusted source. Um, where will I get my information and who do I trust getting that information from? And I think you could ask that of any individual right now and say, okay, let's say if this event's going on, where do you go to get your information? Um, you know, if if you knock out normal cell towers and things like that, you know, a lot of times text messages can still get through, or maybe my carrier still works and yours doesn't. Mm -hmm. um, we you know we see that quite often too. That may not last forever, but you take advantage of that while you can. Now the problem with that is that as opposed to, oh, I need to let Aunt Millie know I'm okay, man, there's probably some more important traffic, some information you'd like to get out. But individuals are not necessarily brought in as part of the the whole overall plan. You know, my whole context now that I'm leaning towards in my, my later years of this whole thing is that 
I would much rather work at a neighborhood or community level to plan and figure out how we are going to form these little ad hoc teams and how we're going to do our business because the problem's ours. And I'm going to let the next level of government interface and try to figure out how to work with my plan as opposed to I got to make my plan conform to what they want. Um, you know, I'm the one that's you know got the alligator swimming around my feet, so you know I'm not too worried about giving them the information that they want. I'm going to be really interested in giving the folks in my neighborhood the information that they need. They need. So I think we need to really look at um, instead of trying to talk to everybody, we need to talk amongst the folks that are directly impacted, and then maybe move out in some sort of a caller fashion. How do we do that? Um, Amateur radio is still always has been, it seems like, you know, a very reliable form of communication, these events. Um, you know, wh when I ride the train uh, uh, into the gym every morning, I, I see one house that I know that, well, if I ever want to communicate with someone, I know where to go because that guy's got an antenna, so I know that I got an amateur radio operator there. You know, those kind of resources exist all over the place, but they're not really put into any sort of a community level plan. Does that make sense, Carl? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely, and I think that leads to also the issue of, of having some situational awareness when it's not a crisis and knowing what resources are in your neighborhood and, and having that kind of in the back of your head to know where those things are when you need them. Yeah, it's kind of weird. And again, this is probably just me because of my background, but you know, when I'm someplace, I'll, I'll, I'll stop and I'll kind of look around and go think, okay, if something were to happen here, is this the group of people I'd like to be with and... You know, in other words, would I rather something happen when I'm at the gym, or would I rather something happen when I'm at the store, or would I rather something happen when I'm down getting a cup of coffee or a, a craft beer at one of the local places? Mm -hmm. um, but I, I think, quite honestly, that is the way we can do better. Is we're willing to step up and say, okay, <laughs> what skill sets you bring to this table, and let's come up with a plan because people will follow someone if it seems like they've got a reasonable plan. Mm -hmm. Um, but you can't write that down on paper and say, this is how this is going to work. You know, that's a real challenge if, if, if I'm at the federal level of government, I'm giving out money to people to plan. That kind of plan just doesn't work for me because I have no way to, you know, somehow quantify the work that you're doing. And yet, when the event happens, that's what you're looking at to really make a difference is how well do these people that are involved in this mess band together to come up with some decent solutions to solve their immediate problems. And I think that begs the question then, how does disaster preparedness differ from urban areas like Chicago and Seattle versus mm -hmm. some rural towns like Missouri or some you know smaller towns in Texas? And what are the challenges with disaster planning and not having access to the same resources or funding? Well, it, it's a double-edged sword. Um, I, when I used to teach for a, a, one of the federal government's training facilities, um, some of the, my colleagues that I teach with were from New York City, and we had students coming in from around the country, and the, the folks in New York would say, and he says, I listen to some of these folks talking from these small little rural areas, and they've got better ideas of how to work with other resources than I do. So in other words, if you're used to having all the resources you want, you're, you're in New York, you're in LA, you're in Chicago, um, you have a different way of looking at problems than if I'm in, in Kalisville, Montana, where, you know, I, I'm a volunteer in the fire department, I also happen to be the emergency manager, and by the way, I work at the local grocery store. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm wearing multiple hats. Mm -hmm. People in those type of areas understand that that's all that's there. And when a tree falls down around 
uh, across the highway. There's three guys in a pickup that go out there with a couple of chainsaws, and you know, before the road people even hear about it, that thing has been cleared and it's taken care of. So they're they're a little more used to doing things for themselves because they don't their the resources aren't there. Now here in Chicago, if a tree falls across the road, you know, I would be really surprised if I saw anybody come out of their place with a chainsaw and start cutting that sucker up. Mm-hmm. Um, because, you know, the, the road department's gonna be all over that thing and they'll have her gone in no time. So um, it's I don't wanna say it's good, I don't wanna say it's bad, it's just it's it is what it is. If I live in that area, I mean, I've lived in rural areas, and I've certainly lived in urban areas, and my go bag that I've got here in an urban area looks different than what I would have when I lived in a rural area. You've been in the business now for over 25 years, emergency management business, and what are the most significant changes within the world of emergency management preparedness since you started working in the industry and can you give a little insight on what will drive the emergency management uh, industry in the coming years? Biggest changes. My initial impression is that emergency management is leaning more towards education versus in the field practical experience. Um, In other words, they're coming more out of academic backgrounds versus are coming out of the public safety background. That's just one trend that I'm seeing. Um, one of the biggest challenges that I see is, and this could just be me, um, but it seems like every time something happens, a whole new generation is trying to resolve the same problem that existed 40 years ago. So we're not very good at recognizing the historical value of what's occurred before, how did we solve it, and what should we be doing this time? Um, it, it just seems like we we have a very poor track record of building any kind of institutional knowledge within the, the profession. Um, in other words, a new emerging manager comes in behind me, and so I'll leave with my 25 years of experience, and they're going to be starting out fresh. Um, you know, I, some of some of my uh, contemporaries. I mean, we kind of chuckle when we see some things happening, but it's just like, well, you know, this is same old, same old. Um, there's nothing new going on with the flood. A flood is a flood is a flood, and yet we seem to struggle. We make the same mistakes, and we do different things, and the conversations go the same way. And it's like we just don't seem to learn. Um, you know, I'm, I'm not a fan of the term lessons learned because we just don't. Um, or if we do, it's for a very short period of time and to a very select group of people. And as they move on, change positions or retire, we go right back to starting from scratch again. Switching gears into a little bit more of an international perspective on emergency management, we are currently in a volatile situation with North Korea. Is that something that is being examined as a threat that we need to better prepare for, whether it be a nuclear or a biological or more commonly a cyber attack like you had in England, which affected hospitals? What is your perspective of, of how we're preparing for that? And is that, is that something that maybe we need to focus on a little bit more? Well, again, see, here, here we're, here we're, we're we, what, what's, what's old is new again is kind of the way I look at it. You know, I grew up in the... Uh, the threat of the Cold War, and I remember the drills where you'd pull the blinds and you, you know, you duck like that's going to do you a lot of good. Right. Um, 
so we can revisit those things. I hate to see everything be a knee-jerk reaction. Uh, North Korea sneezes today, so, oh, well, let's quickly, let's start looking at plans for this. Oh, my gosh, there's an active shooter. Let's start looking at that. Um, you know, I, I just like to say, okay, right, just take a time out. <laughs> we, we know how to deal with the, the, the chem, the bio, the rad, because it's not a new threat. Mm -hmm. It may be new to people that are reading about it now or something else, but there are plenty of people that understand these are the issues that come associated with that type of a threat. If it's not North Korea, it could be any one of a, a number of other folks. Um, you know, biologics have always been a great um, tool from a from a. I'm going to scare you with with bio things. Um, you know, you look at the anthrax attacks back in 2011. Um, you know, you get a good crash on the highway, it's going to kill more people than were killed with inhalatory anthrax. So. Are there concerns? Sure, there are concerns, but we also have people understand the threat. So we got to stop putting these things into a phobia and deciding, oh, my gosh, Freddy Krueger is living in this house. We need to have a Freddy Krueger plan. <laughs> oh, my God, it's old sister hands is over here. What are we going to do? I don't know. Let's start planning for that. So it's like, oh, my gosh, folks, just, just calm down and, you know, take these from a, from a, a little higher level standpoint. Okay, what are the key issues? But again, I, I'm just not a firm believer that I'm counting on the government to have a lot of the solutions and answers to my immediate problems. So that's why, again, I'm driving. We need to drive this back down to more of a neighborhood, a community, an apartment building, whatever you want to say. Um, okay, what are we going to do at our level as opposed to I'm going to wait a couple hours until someone from some official source comes around and tells us what to do. That's just Quite honestly, I'm not saying that's the government fault. I'm saying that's my fault as an individual. That's what I was relying on. What would your advice be for designing a disaster preparedness plan? And you kind of talked about how you need to look at it from the area that you're living in, the region of the, of the world that you're living in, and what should be included in your outline of a plan. You wouldn't have necessarily a complete game plan that will you'll be able to implement, but sort of an idea. And what should be in your disaster bug out bag or your go bag <laughs> well you know because you're looking at puerto rico there's been two weeks since aid has actually arrived to somebody so mm -hmm. what should people prep for how long should they prep for and what are some of the basic things that they should have in there and their disaster go bag yeah well, well again I, you know i mentioned you can go three minutes without, without air well the point of that is that as an individual i need to understand some basic first aid type you know Education, and, and I don't mean CPR. I mean CPR is great, particularly if I've got some of my, my household that's got you know cardiac problems or something like that. But you know, we've invested an awful lot of time in CPR and heart disease is a is a big problem in the country. But if I'm doing CPR, I'm working on somebody that's already dead. So I don't know. I don't know how much value is in that versus someone's got a hole in their chest or they're spurting bright red blood from the legs. They're still alive, and I can fix that if I know what to do. Um, so I think there needs to be a little more towards the education of what do I do if, um, you know, there's some pretty cool products out there now, um, even app based that allow someone that's not trained to fumble their way through providing that type of care. You know, I think that's a good first step that, you know, if people understand what to do, they're less likely, and I don't like really using the term panic, but they're less likely to do the wrong thing if they understand, oh, 
this guy's got a really bad gash in his leg and it's bleeding a lot of blood. And this guy over here doesn't have much of a gash, but it's got this bright red stuff spurting out of here. I better take care of that first. You know, that's some pretty simple, basic stuff that will make a difference at an individual level. Um, you know, and it could be me or it could be someone that I care about that that problem's going on. Well, if I don't know what to do, then all of a sudden it doesn't matter what planning I've done because I'm I'm circling the drain. I'm, I don't have a clue. I'm going to run around and scream and try to get someone to come and help, along with everybody else doing the same thing. So the other thing I mentioned that you need to have in your, in your, your go bag, I think, from a, a disaster preparedness plan is what do we do for shelter? If I've got to leave this area, what do I do for shelter? And not everybody thinks about that. But if you look at the 2011 earthquake tsunami that hit Japan, um, in my opinion, Japan was the best prepared country in the world for that event. And they had people dying because they couldn't get them in shelter within three hours because of the weather. Um, so that really sends a message to me of if I'm on the west coast of the United States or I'm in the region of the New Madrid earthquake and I don't have a plan to get shelter within that time frame, that's a real problem. There is no government entity that's going to do that for me within that time frame. So I've got to have that plan personally. Um, you know, I talked about the, the neighborhood kind of planning, and I think that's where all of a sudden you have force multipliers. So, you know, you, you've got different people with different skill sets. You know, how are you going to make those meetings happen? I don't know. I'm starting to see, you know, LinkedIn people are having these get togethers in places. Maybe communities need to do it as well as, hey, let's have a get together and, and talk about some of the stuff and see what we could do. At a, at a neighborhood level. Um, something else I think that's important to have uh, in your go bag would be some way to uh, add warmth, whether that's you know chemical heating pads, whether that's the ability to start fires. And again, that depends. Am I in an urban environment or am I in a rural environment? Um, you know, do I have some kind of tarps? Do I have a rain gear? Do I have a change of clothing? Um, you know, it doesn't take long to figure out that if you just do a little mental game, say, okay, let's say I had to leave here right now and this is coming with me, how am I going to set up my shop? Um, there's some great TV shows now where you can watch people try these survival things and it's fun to watch just what come, becomes important. And obviously, shelter becomes very important. Water becomes very important. Um, am I going to use chemical tablets for getting potable water? Am I going to set up a rain collection system for getting potable water? Um, I've actually got a pretty fun little device it's it's used in a lot of third world countries that it, it kind of allows you just to scoop water out of a puddle or of anything else and it's got a real simple filter in it and while it may not take all the taste variables out of it um, it is potable water then from the standpoint of i don't have to worry about you know bacteria um being an issue um so water becomes a huge thing you know i just can't carry enough water um to to take care of myself so i need to have some way to get water out of what I find and make it potable from that standpoint. So water becomes huge. Um, maybe it's signaling. Maybe it's um, some type of security from that standpoint. Again, depending upon where I am, what are my concerns? Um, so I think there's some pretty basic uh, issues. I actually did a, a post on that one time on my blog and just got people to add their two cents worth. Or They looked at my kit, which is heavy on medical stuff because of my medical background. So, mm -hmm. you know, if there's an event going on, yeah, I'll, I'll probably get set up as a little first aid station, and but I'll probably trade people, you know. <laughs> hey, that that uh, that candy bar looks really good. I'll trade you that for some of these bandages. Um, 
But I, but I think that's uh, that's the way that these events are going to play out. Um, some people are going to have stuff like that that they can lend to the thing. Other people won't, but that's okay. Um, someone that I, I got to know that was actually a, an American school teacher involved in the 2011 event, um, she talked about how the government and the employer actually prepped them pretty well. And Okay, you're living in an area that's at risk for earthquakes and tsunamis. Um, here's the disaster preparedness information you need to do. Here's the materials and the supplies you need to collect. Um, and fortunately, she took that serious and had done her part, and she did end up um, using those materials to, to survive that event. And also, she's very impressed with the willingness of people around to share. Um, you know, like, hey, you're, you want some water? I've got extra water. You want some more rice? I've got some extra rice. Um, so. You know, it was a good demonstration to me that even in a catastrophic event like that, if people take a little bit of initiative ahead of time, you'll do pretty good for a period of time until some sort of official help arrives. You've been a wealth of information today, Jan, and we thank you for coming on the show. And where can people find more about you and the services that you provide? Maybe somebody might want to have you come out to their organization to talk about emergency management. Where can where can people find information about you? Uh, Pretty simple. If they just uh, Google a better emergency, all one word, a betteremergency.com, they'll they'll get to my website. Um, and I'm uh, I I usually have controversial discussions going on, so um, they may enjoy reading some things. They may see some of the things that I do. Um, basically, if they've got an interesting project, I'll probably be interested in it. Um, I, I'm not one to develop boilerplate plans, and I'm not one to develop. Uh, you know, canned courses um, because I just think there's a danger in, in being satisfied that I've got a plan on the shelf or I've now got a certificate that says I've taken a certain course. I'm much about, you know, let's demonstrate some competencies and let's have something that's going to work and you can implement it. Then I feel a lot better about doing that service for somebody. Jan, thank you again for coming on the show today. We appreciate you having on. You're always welcome to come back to talk about disasters and emergency management. Hey, thanks, Carlton. I really appreciate the opportunity. Have a wonderful day. You too. Bye-bye. That concludes this episode of the 10th Podcast. We thank you for listening. For more information about us, you can visit us at www.thetenthdistrict.com and on iTunes, the 10th Podcast. Make sure you subscribe and you will automatically get all of our new episodes that are released. Until next time, this is Rocky Lawson signing off.